Our text this morning is Matthew uh, chapter 26, verses 36 through 46. If you recall, we're working through the book of Matthew. We are now after the Last Supper. Jesus and the disciples head out to the Mount of Olives. While on the Mount of Olives and on the way, Jesus warns his disciples that they will fall away when he is struck in. And all the disciples join Peter in declaring, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And then in Matthew 26, uh, picking up at verse 36, we read, Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and he found them sleeping. Could you men not keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away, unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he found again them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour is near, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. This is God's word. For at least the last century or so in the United States, uh, there's been a tradition of giving death row inmates a last meal. Granting condemned prisoners their requests for a final meal. And these requests have ranged from things like KFC and Burger King to fine steaks and lobster. I wonder if you've ever thought about this. What would it be like to pick something to eat knowing it was going to be your last meal? knowing it would be the last thing you'd ever eat, what would you pick? Or some of you in this room have been in the military, and at one point you were contacted and told to report to the airport at a certain point to be sent out to basic training or to be deployed. And what do you do when you have a week or 24 hours or 48 hours of freedom left? How do you spend your time? Who do you spend it with? In our passage this morning, like a military man, Jesus only has a few hours of freedom left before he's to report for a mission. Like a condemned man about to be executed, Jesus knows that his time has come. His death is at hand. And how does Jesus spend his last few hours of freedom? What does he pick for his last meal, as it were? Jesus spends his time in prayer. He faces the reality of being condemned to death, of his death being hours away in prayer. Prayer is clearly important 
to Jesus. If we only had a few hours left, if we knew that our death was hours away, I wonder how many of us would choose to spend those hours in prayer. Why is prayer so central to Jesus' life that he would spend these last few hours praying? So this morning I want to talk from this passage and look in this passage about prayer. What does it teach us about prayer? We're going to see Jesus tells us about prayer, he shows us prayer, and he prays for our sake. But first we need to set the scene. Jesus and the disciples are apparently already walking around on the Mount of Olives, and they enter what seems to be an estate or an orchard called Gethsemane, which probably means oil press. So in all likelihood, they're in an olive grove on the hill opposite Jerusalem. Jesus leaves most of the group behind, but takes Peter, James, and John with him. In Matthew 4, these were three of the earliest disciples called to follow Jesus. They seem to be some of his closest friends. In Matthew 17, when Jesus goes up and he's transfigured, when his glory is shown in his earthly body, Peter, James, and John are the three who are with him. And they hear God's audible voice from heaven say, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And now, as it were, they see the opposite side of Jesus' glory, or the other side at any rate. They see him being transfigured on the mount in Matthew 17, and now they see him in the garden. In Matthew 17, God said, this is my son. And here in the garden, he says, my father. They're seeing another part of the glory of Jesus, but it's a part that none of us would pick for ourselves of this painful prayer. More recently in Matthew 20, just before they enter Jerusalem, you'll remember James and John's mother's mother, uh, their brothers, so their single mother asks if these sons can sit at Jesus' right hand and left hand when he comes into his kingdom. And Jesus says, you have no idea what you're asking for. He says, can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? And the brothers say, yes, we can. And then remember in the very verse before this that we looked at last week, Peter said, even if it means dying, I will never abandon you. So these are three of Jesus' closest friends. They've been with him in his most intimate moments and they've professed their their love for Jesus, and their willingness even to die for him. And yet, of course, they keep falling asleep in this passage, don't they? I want to address one other point in passing. In the modern period, from time to time, people have questioned the reliability of the Bible at this point, posing what one commentator calls the village atheist objection. After all, if the disciples are asleep, then they couldn't have heard what Jesus was praying. And so surely what our story records for us is a fabrication. Now, people have said this and said the Bible is not reliable for this reason. And so it's, it's good to reflect on this objection for just a moment. Uh, and if we do reflect for just a moment, we see this objection is nothing. It just evaporates in our hands. Jesus comes back to the disciples after praying for an hour to find them asleep. Surely we're not to imagine that as soon as Jesus went past the disciples a step, they were immediately asleep. Surely what we are to picture here is that they began praying with him. They overheard him praying. And sometime during that hour, they fell asleep and were asleep by the time he returned. After all, if Jesus prayed for an hour, surely he said more than the three sentences recorded in this passage. And yet these three sentences are a reliable indicator of the sorts of things he was praying about. So I don't think there's really any issue here for us that if the disciples are asleep, 
who was witnessing the prayer. Uh, this objection's been made, but it's just a very superficial objection. As many of these sorts of objections to the reliability of the Bible actually are if we stop and reflect on them. Okay, preliminaries out of the way. There's three things, especially kids taking notes, there's three things I want you to get this morning. Here's the first thing. In this passage, the whole passage, Jesus instructs us in the school of prayer, and he instructs us in three ways. The first way Jesus instructs us is he tells us about prayer. Jesus tells us about prayer in this passage. Now, of course, Jesus doesn't sit down and give a lecture on how to pray like he does at the Sermon on the Mount. That would be entirely inappropriate to the occasion. But notice how many echoes there are of the Lord's Prayer in this passage. Jesus gave the disciples the Lord's Prayer as a model to pray, and he seems to be using that model in part here in his own prayers. He taught his disciples to pray, Our Father who is in heaven. And here he says, my father. He addresses his prayer in the same way. He taught his followers to pray, our father in heaven, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And here he prays, not my will, but your will be done. And again, at the end of the Lord's prayer, we pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And here Jesus tells Peter, watch and pray that you will not fall into temptation using the same phrase from the Lord's Prayer. And so Jesus' prayer here and his teaching on prayer echoes his earlier teaching in the Lord's Prayer. That should be in the back of our minds throughout this passage. But in this passage, Jesus goes further teaching us how to pray. Again, this isn't a lecture on prayer, and so Jesus doesn't sit down and give any definitions. But it is helpful to have in front of us a bit of a definition of prayer. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says this, What is prayer? Prayer is offering up to God our desires for things agreeable to his will in the name of Christ with confession of sin and thankfulness for God's mercy. Prayer is offering up to God our desires for things agreeable to his will in the name of Christ with confession of sin and thankfulness for God's mercies. Or the early church father Clement of Alexandria put it more simply, Prayer is keeping company with God. Prayer is keeping company with God. Well, in our passage, Jesus uses parts of the model that we call the Lord's Prayer, but he also tells us two more things about prayer. Jesus tells us about the necessity of prayer and about the value of shared prayer. About the necessity of prayer and the value of shared prayer. So first, the necessity of prayer. Several times in this passage, Jesus instructs his disciples to watch and pray with him. In verse 41, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So prayer is necessary in the face of temptation. Prayer is vital if we want to prevail in the battle with sin. In fact, prayer is really the only way to ultimately overcome fleshly desires and temptations. And so Jesus tells Peter and the others, you must watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. Prayer is acknowledging that we need help that only God can give us. A willing spirit is not enough by itself. We need God's power. Now, we often pretend that temptation comes completely out of left field. We're walking along and suddenly we're tempted to sin in a way that we've never contemplated before. 
But part of prayer is honestly exploring our inner lives with God, allowing him to search us, as we've done in our confession this morning, allowing God to sort through our inner struggles and desires. And if we examine ourselves, we know that we have certain recurring temptations that we will face. We know that we will encounter situations when we're tempted to cheat at work, perhaps, or in our schoolwork, in situations when we're tempted to watch and look at things we shouldn't. Temptations in certain situations to drink more than we should. Whatever the urges and desires are you face, if you're honest and prayerfully reflect, you can probably figure out when you're most likely to face those temptations. And so Jesus instructs us, be watchful, be wary, and be prayerful. A willing spirit in finding freedom from our urges and destructive patterns is not enough. We can't simply say, I don't want to sin anymore. We have to be watchful and we need to watch in prayer. But look, it's not just Peter and the disciples in this passage who need prayer. Prayer is necessary even for Jesus. And if prayer is necessary for Jesus, surely it is necessary for us too. If Jesus, the very Son of God, needs to spend hours in prayer, how much more do you and I need prayer? Faced with unimaginable difficulty, Jesus chooses to spend his time in prayer. Now we face a real problem here. Many of us simply feel that we are too busy to pray, or at least to pray at any length. Too busy to develop a sustained, deep, and active life of prayer. But notice how seriously Jesus takes prayer. He spends his very last hours praying. Now, there could be all sorts of reasons that you feel too busy to pray. But it seems to me that there's at least two common diagnoses. First, the desert fathers in the early church called a certain sort of busyness moral laziness. Our busyness, all the activities we sign up for, the tasks we take on, even our saying yes to too many good things is a way of filling up our outward lives so that we don't attend to our inward lives in prayer. It's a careful balance here. We're given lives for living and God instructs us to work in the world. But we can fill up our lives in a way that we neglect our inner lives. And this is the busyness that hides underlying moral laziness. Now, if you read the story and the thought of spending three hours in a Mediterranean olive grove quietly praying horrifies you, then this may be your condition, that you don't want to deal with the stuff inside, and so you're filling up with all sorts of outside stuff, all sorts of activities to avoid dealing with this. But there's a second, uh, and especially with modern technology, this is a serious risk. We actually drown out our own souls. We can hardly drive or do dishes without podcasts or music. We can't sit down with our family without turning on the TV. We can't even use the restroom without checking the headlines or our friends' social media posts. We drown out any quiet time or any chance to even know what's going on in our own hearts, let alone a chance to pray and spend time with God. And so we must be wary of a busyness that hides moral laziness. But the second reason you might feel too busy to pray is because you simply have too low of a view of prayer. You have a lot of work to do, 
and you feel that the best thing to do, maybe it's even an overwhelming amount of work to do, and you think, I can't pause to pray. I need to set about my work and get it done for the day, and if there's time left in the evening, I'll pray. Now, your work, I'm sure, is very important. I'm not questioning that. But Jesus' work is even more important. The work he's about to set about is the most important work done in the history of the world. And yet he spends three hours preparing for it in prayer. Jesus sets for us a model, prayer and then work. Now, hear me carefully. I'm not saying that you necessarily need to wake up even earlier before you milk the cows or head off on your commute or whatever your routine looks like. Although for many of us, that's something we need to consider is getting up a bit earlier to pray. But it means recognizing that prayer before work means that prayer is the foundation for our work. And so maybe it means waiting 15 minutes in the car on the way to work to turn on the radio or in the barn milking cows we wait to turn on the radio. Now the necessity of prayer, this might sound onerous, but if you went to your doctor tomorrow and your doctor said to you, your heart is in bad shape and if you don't start walking 30 minutes a day, you're going to have a heart attack and die. Would you start walking 30 minutes a day so that you could keep living? I'm sure most of us would. Maybe one or two of us wouldn't, but most of us would start walking, right? Now, I'm telling you with complete seriousness, if you don't pray, your spiritual arteries will clog, they will fill with plaque, and your soul will die. It is just as serious as any condition that a doctor will ever tell you about. The need for prayer. So Jesus tells us in this passage about prayer. He tells us that it's necessary. He also tells us that shared prayer is valuable. Several times in the Gospels, Jesus goes off on his own to pray. And this is an important part of a healthy spiritual life. But here Jesus goes with his disciples. And he keeps returning to them to check that they're praying with him. And so here we need a balance. Jesus warns that prayer is not the time for showing off how spiritual we are. It's not a time for grandstanding or showing how eloquently we can speak. But this doesn't mean that prayer is only ever a private thing. Prayer is keeping company with God. It's being open before him. But it's also being open and keeping company with others who we pray with. Prayer is a cornerstone of the Christian community. And in busyness, we neglect our inner lives. We also neglect our lives together, praying together. And so it's very good that as a church we have a practice of praying together in Sunday evenings, of praying together as families and in small groups. Jesus tells us in this passage about prayer. He tells us it's necessary and that there's value to shared prayer. But second, and kids, here's the second big idea, is Jesus not only tells us about prayer, but he shows us prayer. Jesus shows us prayer. Jesus is a good teacher. He doesn't just tell his students what prayer sounds like or looks like, but he shows them. He illustrates it. He embodies his own instructions. And what do we see in Jesus' prayer in this passage? First, Jesus shows us repeated prayer. Three times in our passage, Jesus returns to pray. And in verse 44, it says, Jesus went once more and prayed a third time, saying the same thing. Here's a contrast with Peter's three denials that we looked at last week. Three times Peter denied that he knew Jesus. Three times he had the opportunity to confess Jesus and failed. And here Jesus three times returns to prayer and faithfulness to his mission. Again, there's a careful balance here. Jesus warns his disciples against prattling on in prayer. 
Endless words do no favors for God. But the life of prayer requires tenacity, persistence, doggedness, determination. We have a number of students uh, in our church who are gearing up for fall sports, soccer, cross-country, football. The truth is, it's really not that bad getting ready for a fall sport. It's sunny out in August. You don't have school. It feels good to lace up and go for a run or however you're preparing. Go to practice, right? You have more time. It's not that bad getting ready for a fall sport. But getting ready for spring sports, when tryouts are the last weekend of February, getting ready for spring sports for track or baseball or fast pitch, it is miserable. If you did high school sports, you remember this. Getting up early before school, in the dark, in the wet, in the cold to run in January and February isn't fun. But as much as anything that happens during the actual season, the difference at, at district meets, district uh, games, is made in the wet, cold, dark, lonely hours of the winter. It's the prep you do in the winter that gets you ready for the spring. And so also with prayer. Jesus shows us that prayer in the dark, the cold, the lonely hours of winter is preparation for work. This long tenacity in prayer is what we need. Prayer that no one will ever see is what we need if we want to have victory over sin and temptation. So Jesus shows us the need for repeated prayer. He prays about the same thing. And some of you have prayed about the same thing time and again. Family members that you wish would come to Christ and that you pray would come to Christ and you've prayed over and over again for that. For struggles in your own life that you've prayed for over and over again and Jesus models for us. Jesus himself has to pray for the same thing over and over again. So we need to be, be tenacious in our prayer and steadfast. Second though, Jesus shows us we don't always get the answer we want in prayer. He says if there's some other way, let's do it that way. He wants any other way. The way ahead of him is miserable. Death on a cross is excruciating. Jesus says, isn't there another way? Isn't there some other possibility? But notice Jesus doesn't quit praying when he doesn't get the answer he wants. He doesn't walk away from prayer and give up on it. Jesus shows us that prayer means continuing to keep company with God even when we don't like what God is telling us to do. And if you haven't realized this yet, this is an assured truth. In the life of faith, God is going to tell you to do things you don't really want to do. That's the bottom line. Because we're sinful, wayward people, and we want to do things we shouldn't. And God knows what's best for us. Uh, And he will tell us to do things we don't want to. But third, Jesus shows us that prayer is for those who are sorrowful and troubled. In verse 38, Jesus says his soul is overwhelmed with sorrow, even to the point of death. And he's not exaggerating here. He's not being a drama queen. He's being serious. He is overwhelmed and distressed and sorrowful. His words are very strong, deeply distressed language that he's using. He's even despondent. In fact, the words he uses here seem to echo the Greek translation of Psalm 42 and 43, which you may remember those Psalms have a repeated refrain. I know it's been two years since we looked at those Psalms, a long time ago, but Psalm 42 and 43, it, it repeats this refrain. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you disturbed within me? Jesus seems to have these Psalms in mind in his prayer here. He's using the same language. And in these Psalms, the Psalm writer expresses his longing 
and even thirst for God. He says, I, I pant for you like a deer thirsting for water. But the psalmist also says that he feels that God has forgotten him and that he's being overwhelmed by his enemies. And here Jesus shows us something very important about the life of prayer. He shows us that prayer is not just for those who are cheerful and happy. It's not just for those whose lives are working out, who have everything put together. Prayer is for the sorrowful, the troubled, the despondent. Prayer is for those who feel that God has forgotten them. Now, I want to be careful here in what I'm about to say, but it's important to make this point. We want to be an intergenerational church. That is a church that is united in Christ, not united because we're all the same age or the same demographic or have the same interests. And so we need to take this point that prayer is for those who are distressed and depressed very seriously. For just a minute, I need to pause and talk to people older than myself, which is always awkward. You have a lot more experience than I do and much more wisdom. But studies show that millennials, Kelsey and I would be, my wife and I, would be the very oldest in this generation. So people roughly the age of 20 to the age of Kelsey and I, whatever age you think that is. Uh, (laughs) uh, Studies show that millennials, my generation, are five times as likely to contemplate suicide as baby boomers. The leading cause for death among millennials is what Time Magazine calls deaths of despair. Drug overdose, alcohol, and suicide. Anxiety, depression, and other mental health issues are far more common among millennials than older generations. Now, there's all sorts of contributing causes, and it's not my job to try and diagnose all the problems in our society. These are large societal issues. Uh, Millennials have unrealistic expectations. They have way too much technology. There's pervasiveness of drugs, so on and so forth. We don't have to diagnose all the issues, but rather we simply need to recognize this, that for the church and for Christianity to be plausible to younger generations, we need to make space for lament. We need to make space for prayer for those who are depressed, despondent, downtrodden, who feel let down by life. We need to continually come back to this, that what we find in the Bible is that Jesus shows us that prayer is precisely for those who are despairing, not only for those who are happy. And the Bible is actually full of prayers expressing these sorts of emotions. It's no surprise to the writers of the Bible that people feel distressed and depressed in life. They express these sorts of emotions throughout the Psalms. But if we, as the church, mistakenly portray the Christian life as being constant cheerfulness, you know the old, I'm so happy, I'm so happy, I've got the joy of Jesus down in my H-E-A-R-T. If that's all we say, um, uh, then Christianity simply will not seem plausible to a generation that contemplates suicide five times as often as their parents and grandparents. I'm not saying they're justified in their depression and all these things, but I am saying if that's how they feel, we need to acknowledge that this is part of the life of faith. Now, on the other hand, if you're someone who feels downcast and overwhelmed with sorrow and despair, if you're maybe one of these millennials in this group, Jesus is your model. He doesn't quit praying. He doesn't say, I feel upset and therefore prayer doesn't work and I'm going to walk away from this. He doesn't walk away from God even when facing his certain death. With Psalm 42 and 43, Jesus is praying in the garden, God, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go on mourning, oppressed by the enemies? 
And yet, nevertheless, I will put my hope in God. Luther says faith simply is prayer. It's this life of tenacious prayer, even in the midst of difficult circumstances. And in fact, part of the loneliness that millennials feel and this fear of actually knowing themselves uh, is associated with this social media and stuff that we feel like we're connected to people, but in reality, millennials uh, and younger generations report having fewer friends and would say, many say that they experience loneliness daily. And prayer is, in fact, a way of dealing with this. It's experiencing intimacy with God and that as we pray, we're actually able to have more genuine and true friendships with others. I'm happy to talk about this more uh, over food in the back room, but I think moving on for this point, uh, Jesus tells us about prayer in this passage. He says it's necessary that we pray together. Jesus shows us that prayer is repeated and that it's for those who are downcast. But if Jesus only taught us what to do and only showed us what it looks like, we would be lost. Prayer would be no better than any other self-help program or diet. That it would be our own willing to be better than we are currently. And so here is the third and most important truth that we see in this passage. Jesus tells us about prayer. He shows us prayer. But Jesus prays for our sake in this passage. Jesus' prayer in this passage is for our sake. Jesus prays for us. There's a tragic irony in this passage. The disciples boasted that they too will face death with Jesus, and yet they keep falling asleep. Jesus keeps coming back to check on them like a mother checking on a sleeping baby, and he sees them sleeping. And he recognizes that although their spirit may be willing to die with him, their flesh is weak. Although they love Jesus and say they will face his death at his side, They are not able to do this in their own power. We need Jesus to teach us how to pray, how to keep company with God. But even more than that, we need Jesus' own strength in order to keep company with God, in order to be faithful in prayer. So Jesus sees his sleeping disciples, their weakness, their inability. He keeps checking on them. And as he checks on them, notice that his resolve strengthens. At first, he says, Father, if it's possible, take this cup away. Second, he says, if it's not possible, but I drink this cup, may your will be done. He's strengthened in his resolve to carry out his mission. He is praying that he might do a work for our sake. His prayer isn't for his own benefit. It's for you and I's benefit. That he might faithfully carry out his mission. He says, not my will, but yours be done. In his holy and righteous nature, this is a man who has never sinned. He looks at sin, he sees that it's destructive, that it tears apart lives, and he recoils from it. Reflecting on this, Paul says that on the cross, Jesus, who knew no sin, was made to be sin for our sake. And so contemplating this taking on to himself of sin, Jesus is horrified. He is innocent and holy, and he hates sin. And so he's horrified by this in his holy nature. And yet in his holy will, Jesus looks at what needs to be done, that we might be brought back to the Father, that we might be rescued so that we can pray together our Father. And in his holy will, he resolves to do what in himself he recoils from. Sometimes the cross has been depicted either as the Son tricking God the Father who's otherwise angry into accepting us again, or as a form of divine child abuse. 
But here in Jesus' prayer, we really do glimpse the glory of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as surely as we do in the transfiguration. Here in Jesus' prayer, we see total agreement between the will of the Father and the Son. The Son's not being forced to do something he doesn't want to. He says, Father, may your will be done. His will is to do the will of the Father. But he's not placating an angry Father who wants to reject us. It is the Father's will that we might be saved. The entire possibility for our salvation, of our being able to keep company with God in prayer, hinges on this, the inner life of love of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who are totally agreed in their will for our salvation. And what is it that the Son is resolved to do? He's resolved to do this. He says in both prayers, this cup. He says, I will drink this cup. And what is this cup? Throughout the Old Testament, the cup is a metaphor used to refer to God's righteous judgment on his people for their injustice and sin. It's called the cup of wrath. So, for example, Isaiah 51, 17. uh, In exile, Jerusalem has drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. Jeremiah 25, 15. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me. Take from my hand this cup filled with the wine of my wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. This cup he's talking about is God's righteous judgment on injustice and sin. And Jesus looks at this cup, this cup filled with the wrath of God, as it were, and he says, I will drink this cup empty. So those who deserve this, those who deserve the wrath of God, might drink a different cup that we talked about a few weeks ago the cup of the Lord's table that we celebrated. Jesus resolves that he will drink the cup of wrath. He resolves that he will bear the punishment of our injustice and sin. He resolves that he will allow himself to be betrayed into the hands of sinners unmasking sinfulness. He resolves that he will show how sinful human justice is by allowing sinners to put him, an innocent man, to death. And so we see in this passage the consequence of sin, the strictness of divine judgment, Jesus' horror at sin and the wrath of God, the very ugliness of sin, the weight of the curse. But we also see the mercy of God, the unspeakable love of God the Father and Jesus Christ for Christ's own people. In this passage, Jesus tells us how to pray. Jesus shows us what prayer looks like. But Jesus also prays for our sake, that he might have the resolve to carry out the mission which is set before him, that he might accomplish the work for our benefit of drinking the cup of wrath, that we might have friendship with God again. And so in verse 45, Jesus wakes up his disciples with this gently ironic question, are you still sleeping and resting? Let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Here we need to note, Let us go. He's not saying, let's try and run away. The betrayer's coming. Let's sneak off through the garden. There's no thought of running away. Uh, Many of you who are older will remember on 9-11, Todd Beamer and the other passengers of Flight 93 realized that their flight had been hijacked. And they realized that other flights that had been hijacked on the same day had already been crashed into the World Trade Center buildings and the Pentagon. And so Todd Beamer and his fellow passengers knew they would probably die, but that they could stop the terrorists from crashing into buildings and killing others. So together they prayed Psalm 23 
and they stormed the cockpit by crashing and crashed the flight into an empty field, saving lives. This is what Jesus does here. He prays before he sets about a work. He knows that he's going to die, but in the process he'll save many lives. And you may recall Todd Beamer's famous last words recorded were, let's roll. That they, he's on the cell phone. He said, let's roll. And that's what Jesus is saying here. He says, he's not saying, let's go, let's escape from betrayers. He's saying, let's roll. It's happening now. And we'll turn to this next passage uh, next week. But let us now turn to do what we have reflected on, prayer. Prayer.